2: Hello and welcome to the Ruler podcast and as the opening music may have suggested uh, this edition is all about one of the truly legendary events in the pro cycling calendar Paris-Roubaix, l'enfer du Nord. We'll be hearing from current pros getting ready to face up to this year's Hell of the North retired pros reminiscing about their favourite days on the cobbles and reliving 2004's famous duel in the Roubaix velodrome with Magnus Baxter and Roger Hammond. And we're also joined by journalist and author Will Fotheringham, who's written a book about Roubaix. Well, strictly, it's a book about the film from which our opening theme was taken, Jorgen Leth's A Sunday in Hell, which tells the story of the race in 1976. Uh, Will, a whole book about one film, about uh, one race. Uh, what, what possessed you to do that?
3: I went to a screening of the film um, a few years ago in Bristol. Jorgen was there and we did a Q&A. And once you started hearing Jorgen talking about the film, you became aware that there's a, a whole backstory to the film which was worth investigating. And that's basically why I decided to do it. And it's, it was kind of a funny one because I didn't really have any idea of quite how I was going to do it and where, where I was going to end up. Um, I knew I'd talk. I knew I'd go into the, how he made the film, and I knew I'd also go into the backstories of the people who were there, and I knew I'd look at the route. But what I hadn't realised was how much I'd learn about his collaborators and the people who made the film and precisely how they did it.
2: Yeah, as we said, I was a little bit sceptical about the book, but having uh, read it and rewatched The Sunday in Hell, um, I really enjoyed it. I think it's a brilliant book. If you're listening to this and you haven't seen Sunday in Hell, uh, do try and get a copy. You can actually download a digital version of it uh, from a, a documentary website online. And uh, maybe go and get a copy of Will's book as well. We'll talk more about the book and the film in a little while. Um, we're also joined by Andy McGrath, ruler, editor, and Parry Roubaix fan. Um, Andy, who's your money on for this year?
4: There's no figurehead anymore. There's no Tom Boone and There's no clear favourite. Peter, Peter Sagan still hasn't won yet. Think he thinks he's only won one monument, which is remarkable given his dominance everywhere. Uh, even Greg Van Avermaet in the latest issue has said that Roubaix he thought wasn't a race that suited him and the conditions perhaps helped him last year, the roaring tailwind, that kind of thing. I'd like to see someone like Set van Mark win who constantly comes so close to a big classics victory and falls short. Um, so maybe this year um, he can uh, attack on the Carrefour de Laba and it'll go to the finish I think that'll be a popular victory anyway.
2: Are you going out to watch again this year?
4: I am, yeah. I, I can't really miss one until it's wet, until it's a muddy Roubaix. It's been 16 years. 16 years of no heavy rainfall in April in northern France. It's ridiculous, really.
2: So the one year you miss, it's going to pour down. Isn't Probably, it? Yeah. <laughs> Harry Roubaix uh, tends to be popular with fans and, and journalists, but it's not popular with all riders. Bernardino uh, won it in 1981. Afterwards, he called it a Connolly, which I think politely translates as a shambles. Um, Fabian Cacciolara won it three times. Uh, twice, in fact, he won Roubaix and the Tour of Flanders in the same year. Unlike Bernardino, Fabian was a
5: Roubaix fan. Or you love or you hate. Somehow I don't like it, because when I did it the first time. I stopped at the feed zone, second feed zone, and I had a horrible first premiere of, of Roubaix, but I said, I will come back, I will fight back. I it back, I, I mean, I came back, I it back, and uh, another not super story, I mean, we arrived with four riders into the velodrome, and I arrived fourth. Uh, wasn't good, but it was still good because I learned the big lesson, because winning with that young age, will maybe be not as good, and I think the learning lesson I had and the words I got from uh, Franco Ballerini was nice, and this was giving me for sure no doubt that one day I can win this Roubaix race, and I said to myself, I want to really come back, not only to race back, but to really go on for a win. You need tactics and strength at um, Paris-Roubaix, but um, you also need a bit of luck as well, don't you? It's a combination of everything. I mean, luck you need always. You need luck in life, you need luck in sport, But you need to do something for the luck. So search the luck, do something for it. That was my principle, and this is what I was doing it. I mean, punchers, why a puncher is coming? They say when the puncher is coming, you've been not riding at the the right spots. And the last years, I hadn't really punchers. Yeah, I mean, it can happen that you have bad luck when you have like, I don't know, you have 10 punches. of course. Then it's just something that doesn't work, but... I find the middle way on, on, on things and uh, I think always find the luck on the road and do something for it. The cobbles in Roubaix
2: are, are very different to the ones in it's France. France
5: I mean ones is in France and ones one are in Belgium so and they are two different countries they don't have the same type of cobbles one is a bit rounder the other one is not so round so one is bigger or smaller and uh, there are variations, and uh, and then it's nature. In Roubaix, there's a lot of nature, and when there's no Paris Roubaix, there are farmers on the roads, and the farmers they don't go to renovate those roads.
2: Did you put double bar tape on? No, never saddles, anything like never. that. because a
5: lot of people did for Roubaix, mm. didn't they? Yes and no, but I never, I did it once, I think, but then uh, I never really loved that. I want to feel the handlebar because the handlebar was, was for me an important fact to feel the cobbles, to feel the, the, the way I was riding. And, and that's why I want to have the same handlebar size that I was using for other races. Just for one race, you change the handlebar, I hadn't the same feeling anymore when I was gripping and holding the handlebar. Fabian Cantelara also caught up recently
2: with Yasha Sutanen of Mobistar. Not a household name, but a very strong classics rider. And he's getting ready now for his fifth outing on the Roubaix cobbles.
6: I think I had uh, enough races now to get in shape. And uh, I hope that this year will be a really great season for the classics, yeah. Especially Roubaix.
2: Oh, you say especially Roubaix? Is that uh, is that a favourite race for you? Or? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah,
6: I like the cobbles, and um, yeah, I like uh, the atmosphere on on the on the road on the in the velodrome also to arrive there, and um, yeah, it's just an amazing feeling to 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 be part of uh, Roubaix.
2: Uh, what's the secret to doing well at Roubaix? Everyone I speak to seems to have a different answer. <laughs>
6: Well, for me, it's like um, to know the course really good. I always watch uh, some some days before the the, ra- the races from the last few years in Roubaix to get the uh, feeling, you know, for for the for the classics for the Roubaix. Then I prepare the bike uh, two days before uh, with the team, double tape for the handlebar, and um, yeah, we get some special tires for the wheels. And are you hoping for a dry Roubaix or a? A wet Roubaix? I hope that it's dry, yeah. I had, uh, I had the luck on my side the last four years that uh, it was dry, and I think also the years before I came to a professional was dry. But um, yeah, I don't want to imagine Roubaix when it's wet.
2: Yeah, I'll suit in them. So, um, Will Fotheringham, let's talk a little bit more about uh, A Sunday in Hell and Jorgen Leth's extraordinary uh, feat. Part of that was just getting the film made in the first place. I didn't realise quite how much of a struggle it was to get agreement to film the... Uh...
3: Yeah, it, was, um, it wasn't It was a film that you could have made commercially because what's special about it, or one of the things that's special about it is, is the fact that what you're trying to do is capture an entire event that takes place on a single day over a 150-mile course. And, you, and what Jürgen was attempting to do was to document everything that happened and all the backstories. It's basically... A one-off shoot. It's a single shoot. There's, as some, several people pointed out to me, there are no second takes. If you normally do a documentary, let's say, you know, you do one of those, you know, we know those famous British transport documentaries in the fifties. If you do those, you you know, if if your shot of whatever you're shooting, like a steam engine or something, doesn't come out, you can just go back and do do it the next day. In this case, there's no second takes. It's a one-off. You just what they do is what you do is you assemble a vast number of people. You send them out into the countryside and you hope it works, because he had no mobile phones or any no, sort of no. communication and, and, and he, like he that at all. Did he? had absolutely no control of anything. it. And so again, this is this was the other quite remarkable thing that came through more and more as I looked into it more and more was the fact that he had no control. So when we watch Paris Roubaix on the television or any bike race, what we see is. The product of several cameras that are being fed into a station back at base, and you know, and the producer is going, let's show this one, let's show that angle, let's move to here, let's do this. You're going couldn't do any of that. He could not direct where his cameras went, and they were all trying to find their way around northern France in the chaos. So it was it, a lot of it was just a matter of sheer luck. I mean, there, there was there was a, there was a very elaborate plan which he and his cinematographer, Dan Holmberg, drew up. And I was quite lucky because I I found the plan. I found Holmberg's um, lists of locations for each camera. But basically, once they got going and started flitting from location to location, we all know how it is around a classic... The roads are gummed with traffic. You can get lost very easily. They, they, you know, you, you had no, he had no idea of where anybody would go at a given moment after, a, you know, after the start of the race, basically.
2: And even when they actually got back together, he still didn't have any idea what he got because, of course, in those days, he had to wait for days for the film to be developed.
3: No, you had, and he had so many hours of footage. I mean, they did have this massively clever system where they got sponsorship from, from I think it was Longines, the watch company... And each cameraman had a a watch which would have a a letter on it. At the start of each sequence, they filmed the watch with the letter on it so they would know what time the footage had been taken. And that was obviously pretty crucial because as we go through the film, we get this countdown, and so that's part of why we get that. But it also meant they could work out what had come from where. And he had another problem, which was in in the back end of the race, he had no cameraman in the race because he lost... His best, probably his best in-race motorbike cameraman, the most experienced, called Jacques Loisleur. He, he fell off his motorbike in the morning and, and was completely hoard of combat for the day. So he lost his best motorbike cameraman. And then finally had no motorbike cameraman up with the leaders. And what he actually ends up doing is buying in footage from from French TV for quite a bit of it.
2: And he had this sort of slightly strange or uh, different way of working, of just setting cameras up or telling the camera, and camera people to set them up and just leave them running and film everything.
3: Yeah, he's a massive I mean, again, this was something which you know it was quite interesting for me because I had to learn all this. So I'd find out all this. And uh, what, what what you realise is that he is a massive fan of this of the long single take where you put the camera down and you set it running and you see what happens in front of it and if you look through the film you can see various moments where this happens sometimes it it happens properly as he's envisaged it and sometimes he doesn't because you can actually see where the cameramen have moved the camera (laughs) you know say say a group of riders has gone past and then they've gone oh actually that was nice i'll move it i'll I'll move it to to the left or i'll lower it you know I'll, i'll tweak it or whatever it only really works once with one Take at the end of the, towards the end of the film, which which again it was completely, it was sheer luck that they they found that the, the guy got to this location. He was a very experienced cameraman who actually ended up running the British Film School. He, he was driving along and the, the route, and he, and he noticed that the dust was like coming up and falling, and he, he got his motorbike driver to turn around and go back. And if you look at the, there's a sequence. It's towards the end of the film, just after the break is gone. Um, where we get the countdown through the time, how far behind are the, are the chases, You know, and you count down the seconds, and the and the and, and the mist of dust sort of subsides, and then the next group goes through. The, the dust comes up again, it subsides again, and, we, and it's it's one it's one of the, it's one of the greatest moments of the film, really.
2: For a lot of reasons, it's it's a film that no one would make now, really, is there? Because everything about it. Um, is of a time in some ways
3: well it, it's all of its time but also you'd have to get a massive massive budget i mean it was quite it was probably quite a large budget for the time and it was dependent entirely on state subsidy you'd never get three motorbike cameramen <laughs> in the into a classic you just wouldn't it just wouldn't happen there just isn't the space they wouldn't get the access anyway even if you did get them and if you tried putting i don't know 12 13 camera crews along along the paris roubaix route or the Tour of Flanders route and moving them around they just the, the volume of traffic around the race now is so large that they wouldn't be you know they would struggle to get from location to to location and then finally you know you imagine trying to get cameras behind the five or six biggest stars of the day the day before the race documenting everything they do again it would just be so nightmarish in this world of press officers and PR people, I mean, it just wouldn't happen.
2: And one of the things uh, that really... Strikes me watching the film again after a few years is how small an event it looks. Actually, yeah. Or the the caravan, uh, the team vans, everything is on such a tiny the scale. The word
3: the word that people used to me who were there is artisanal. It is really, really, really old school. You see it as well. I mean, when I was writing my Eddie Merckx biography, I remember looking at footage of of Eddie winning stages in the nineteen seventy four tour, and it was exactly the same picture. It's like it's like a banner and a couple of stands and a few barriers. It's quite amazing, I mean and what's what's kind of wild about it is that how oh, not know 8 or 9 years later you would go to an amateur race in France, a decent amateur race and it would be way way bigger than the than something like Paris-Roubaix or the Tour had been a few years previously. The growth was so massive in the 80s. He really captured the end of an era, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, it was it, I mean, you know, it was it was not dissimilar to how it looked in the 50s. It hadn't changed that much since the 50s and you know, the bikes hadn't changed that much. You know, the, the kit was nicer and shinier and better, but fun, you know, the, the, it, it hadn't changed. If you if you compare those bikes to, to today's bikes, you know, the the, the change wasn't that dramatic from the 50s.
2: Well, is it about Paris-Roubaix that makes it such an extraordinary race for fans in particular? Why do people love it so much?
4: I think firstly, it is those cobblestones and the amount um, of those cobblestones. There is no other race really that compares to it. That's the first thing. Secondly, it's it's still the the aura it it has for everyone, for the riders, for the fans, for journalists. It's one of the only races where the backmarkers will fight tooth and nail just to get to the finish, to be in that velodrome, to go to those showers, to those famous showers, which all of it is nothing much to look at. The velodrome is kind of the paint is peeling. It's been there for 80, 90-odd years. The showers are a normal shower block, but they've been conferred with this magic kind of over the years. And that's the other thing, it's the continuity, the fact that the race has, apart from a little period in the late 80s, it's finished at that velodrome for, we're talking 70 years now, aren't we now? So everyone from Coppy to Bradley Wiggins, Boonen, and Cancellara have been round there, and the atmosphere as well, in person, it It's fine tingling You've really got to be there. And you can easily go there on a Eurostar from London to Lille and get a taxi. Uh, it's fantastic, yeah.
3: Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd concur with everything Andy said. I mean, it's, again, going back to the book, it was kind of just wild to sort of look at locations in the film and uncover those same locations in the footage from the 2016-17 races, which I kind of studied obsessively and it hasn't changed that much no it it has well well actually interestingly the the route has changed an awful awful lot i mean there's actually once you get once you get to the cobbles there's very very little of the 1976 route left but you can actually trace places in the in the you know in the in the route now which which were in the 1976 route and what what's quite interesting was is to compare stills from the f- from screenshots from 1970 from the film with locations today which I did at, at a certain, did quite recently and you know those locations haven't changed and uh, to me, it, the main the main thing about it is just those cobbles and the weather. And I mean, you know, and Andy spoke earlier about how we haven't had a wet Roubaix since, two, I guess, two thousand one. Is it one. Cause the survey's Carnarvon one, um, which I remember was just one of the completely mad ones, and the ninety, you know, the nineteen ninety four one. I think the thing about it is the what what kind of sets it apart for me is that you you know that if it's going to be if it's really really wet, it's going to be very 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 special. But you equally know that that's going to happen possibly once every well 20 years maybe or certainly recently the 1994 one is the one that basically i I kind of gave up going after that because nothing could ever be quite so good ever again it was like the perfect bike race viewing experience and the greatest bike race ever and there was almost no point in going again because that experience could never be replicated i might have replicated in 2001 but it's 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 the fact that you don't know what you're going to get and and it's also the fact that you know what we like about classics is the location you know it's their it's their it's their identity in the landscape and Roubaix has really really got that because okay that route has changed but they haven't done what they've done with the Tour of Flanders and bunged it on a circuit you know and they haven't done what they've done with the Tour of Lombardy and constantly changed the start and finish down I mean the parallel for me is you know, my, my my two favorite classics would be Roubaix and Milan San Remo simply because there is that continuity in the route and, I, and that constancy of location, that's what I really love about
2: them. Uh, one of the riders in 1976, uh, who features uh, quite a lot in the film, uh, was that year's world champion, uh, the Dutchman Henny Kuiper, And he went on to win the race several years later in his career in 1983 uh, after coming back from a puncture. He was uh, world champion, Olympic champion, Tour de France stage winner and on the podium at the Tour de France, uh, countless monuments and, of course, Paris-Roubaix.
0: My son... Uh created a book about me and there's a picture in that book that I finished my first Paris Robert. And on that picture you see I was more than half an hour behind the winner. And I was racing in that race and I didn't know where I was but I have to go to to, to the track in Roubert. But in front of me there was a group, a small group and this French support supporters were always crying, yeah yeah, go go. Uh, so went is not so far away, go, go, go. And I thought I'm still good in the race. But in front of me was Luis Ocaña, And you, ha- you had won the Tour de France the year before. And you wanted to do the couples. But he was very bad on the couples. And I have to learn. So he-, he was maybe 30 and I was 31 on half an hour. But after the race, I was not disappointed. It was a really uh, a big story for me to do it. So, and so I came back and then I came world champion in 75 and they said now it comes serious. You have to come on 15 minutes behind. And then I was for the first time in the breakaway with Francesco, Moser, Roger de Flaming, Martin Meyer. And yeah, I was not so good in the sprint. I came forward, but I was there and I showed my, my nice jersey, you know, and then from then on, I think I was eight or nine times in the top ten, I was always there, because I loved that race.
2: That is a very good field to be competing in, isn't it? Oh, yeah, sure. There's some good names in there as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was all the time. You, you, with, uh, I was competing with the Flaming, with Marc Maggio, with Huberto, Claude Salbet, also with Francesco. Those guys won, uh, Moser and, and the Flaming won uh, four times. Huh? So. Can you remember your first Tour of Flanders? My first tour of Flanders this was a little the same as Paris roubaix On a certain moment, we, it was in a group. Yeah, from day to from hour to hour. We came on a road and I saw the Flaming and Walter Godefroot and the Flemish riders, talking together. And it was very windy. And it was wind, uh, uh, heavy wind. And then on a the five and meter, meter farther on, we turned to the right. And then echelons, echelons. Before I realized I was in fifth echelon, and I have to suffer and to work hard, and a lot of riders quit. But I, I wouldn't quit. I want to finish the race, but how to do that? You know, you have to go. And then when we came to Meerbeek, where the finish was, at a certain moment there came the police with the with blue lights, and we have to go to, to the side of the road because Eddie Max was coming. And we, <laughs> I was. We had to do a small lap there, and I was still half an hour behind. I went to the showers, took a shower, put my bike in my car, was by myself, and they gave me some food, and I went home for 350 km by car. I came home at 12 at night or later, at the other morning, at 9 o'clock, I was on my bike and still uh, with a smile, thinking about the Tour of Ladders. That was how I was, yeah, I did it in the beginning.
2: And when you see the, you know, the huge air-conditioned buses at the races now and the, all the support that the riders have and all the cars, uh, what do you think? Do you, do, you, do you think you would have liked that at the time or are you are you happy you rode when you did?
0: It's good to realise that it's like now, but it doesn't change what I did, you know. I was always looking around what I could do better and I was watching Eddie Max, what he was doing. I remember my first Paris Nice. We were uh, 180 riders, 150, I don't know, but 90% were dropped, and we were with 15 best riders in front on the Montferrand. And then the, the, the Gambagé team was very good at Poulidor, Soutemel, a Xanthi. we were four or five, uh, and, and they make an attack, and Eddie stayed quiet. And on the third moment, he, he go in his back. And he took a key and, and he was working on his saddle. <laughs> to, and it was still riding, and they, they were in front of me. It was the, the final of the stage in Paralisa.
2: So Merckx was adjusting his saddle in the final stages yeah, of the yeah. race. Yeah, but,
0: but now they have. They, they, and then we went to, to the finish. They have to drop us in a car, it was sweating like a pig. And then you have to, for the kids, go to a hotel. And uh, by the start, we, we have not a bus. We, they have to warming up the, the legs on the, in the street changing the clone every after the race. But I'm not jealous. It's good that the sport is evaluating and it gives a good image to the sport. And look, now in England, yeah, maybe we should be... I could be a little jealous about England, but because fighting for a two wins... I was fighting for that too. We have only two wins with Jan Janzi of and now you have five in a row. It's amazing. And yeah, it's good. And, and uh, s- s- cycling is... Uh, it's very hot, hot in in England now, and that makes that's good. And all over the world, and that was is changing a lot.
2: Of all your victories, of all the classics, the monuments, the tour stages, uh, your uh, success in the Grand Tours, what's the one you're proudest of now when
0: you look back? A monument is Paris-Roubaix. That's that is that was my race. I am a son of a farmer. I'm a fighter, but it, I told you already that. In the beginning, Paris-Roubaix, France, and all those races, I have to learn. But I am somebody, when I'm coming on the steam, then it's hard for the concurrents to beat me. And so Paris-Roubaix is hard, it's long, the cup stones, you have a flat tie, you have to come back. Don't lose, don't lose the morale, be, be positive. And that, yeah, that, that was my favorite race, that's why.
2: Annie Kuyper there, who won the race in 1983 and features in A Sunday in Hell. Uh, Will Fotheringham, the 76 race, was won by uh, Mark de Meyer. Um, But Jorgen Leff isn't particularly interested in, in no, him, is he? I
3: mean, Jorgen is, is drawn to charismatic characters, what he calls heroes. And he, he published a book um, a few years ago called My Heroes, which details some incredible larger-than-life characters that he's rubbed shoulders with over the years. In the film, his hero is... Roger De Vlaming, basically. He De Vlaming is the guy that that, that Jorgen really likes. He like he likes that charisma, that's slightly men, you know, that slightly menacing aura that he has. De Meyer is just more ordinary. That's why Jorgen isn't massively keen on him. He loves Merckz as well, obviously, because he, you can't not love Merckz. You know, that that fantastic cool and you know, that, that, that the way he approaches the race. But De Meyer was essentially a journeyman who got lucky on the day. Um, if Martin's hadn't fallen off. It's highly unlikely that Demeyer would have won. Freddie was very happy and still is very happy that <laughs> that Mark won because um, they put one over De Vlamming, who Freddie still doesn't like to this day. Um, you know, and and he De Meyer was a very good bike rider in his own right. He was a really good bike rider, but he didn't have that star quality that the likes of Martin's De Vlaminck and Merck's had.
2: Now one edition of the race which many people will certainly remember is 2004. The script said that Johan Museo might win that on his final outing but the puncture took him out of contention with 15k to go and it went all the way to the velodrome and Magnus Baxter took the sprint holding off uh, Roger Hammond and Tristan Hoffman and Fabian Cancellara. Uh, Roger Hammond and Magnus Baxter, now uh, both of you had uh, long successful careers in the professional peloton but there is uh, one race you'll uh, both always be remembered for and that was uh, Roubaix in 2004, Magnus you won, uh, Roger you came third, how do you look
7: back on, on that race now? Well, from my point of view it's, uh, it's obviously the the biggest memory I have from, from a professional cycling career and um, the proudest moment as well so I um, I certainly got that very very close in my heart all the time, and it's obviously something that people keep on asking me about as well. So it's still very very fresh in my memory. There's no doubt about that. It, it wasn't sort of uh, an accident, was it? You 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 had prepared for that race, and you
2: you had serious intentions for that race.
7: Yeah, of course I did. And and but that started already back in '98 when I got to ride it the first time, and um, since then it's been it's been a, a passion and obsession uh, to to do as well as I could and try and obviously win it one day if that was at all possible so every year went into uh, we went into the classics and uh, and um, certainly to Paris-Roubaix prepared 100% for it uh, wrecked all the all all the cobblestone sections on a number of occasions and tried to get the best material together to, uh, to to be as as smooth as possible on the cobblestones as well so everything that I could possibly think of went into that one so there was already back then a certain, a certain amount of marginal gains, yeah, because you watch videos of uh, the, of the sections, you watch videos of other riders. Yeah, I mean, we we went across them on a, on a couple of occasions with um, with you know a, a car behind me and uh, basically a video filming me riding across the sections to see um, what lines I picked on that and that, those particular sections, and then try and memorise as much as possible, and more more so actually memorise the last kilometer and a half to 2k before every section so you knew exactly when you needed to make that do or die move to get into the section um, in the top five and I think Roger can probably vouch for that as well that every time you end up in the front row on the cobblestones in the top three four five life is so much easier and uh, obviously a a lot safer as well so there's an awful lot of time and prep that, that went into that particular part of the setup.
2: Uh, Roger, what's your sort of outstanding memory of that race now?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it was one of those, right? the, the outstanding memories, I think, was where it, we were just talking about it earlier, was it about all the, on that day, just how all of the stars aligned, you know, in that, um, you, you know, you always prepare. I prepared every year for to be ready for Paris Roubaix, and, and out of all of the Roubaixs I did, that was the only one where the stars aligned fully. Um, you know, I went back a few times and fourths and sevenths, but the fourths was I was riding for somebody else. Seventh, I crashed and and you know uh, lost half of the head. So you know that that was a day where it all all um, all the stars aligned, and we ended up you know going into the velodrome in that front group of four guys. Um, which so I think that that's the lasting memory of it is that you know is when you get to the end of your career, you look back and you think, well, you know it in that front group there was none of us were really the big favourites and, and yet all of a sudden there was this group of not big favourites in the front with the big favourites all having put bad luck just behind us and, and you know how many times has that happened in a, in a, in a generation let alone in a career So um, There's always an element of luck about Roubaix though isn't there more than almost any other race I, my, my opinion is is it always an element of luck outside of the top two riders in the race so there was Van Piedigam and Museo. And they just had to have really bad luck, um, To whereas for everybody else in the race, it was a, an element, you know, Maggie's stories of, you know, you know, how the sprint ran out or how we got to the velodrome, how whatever, you know, my, me being in the right place, I was in the right place when Museo attacked just because Van Pedingham asked me to be there and that was it. So, you know, there's all these scenarios that you run through a million times. But then, you know, the other side of the coin is I think you make your luck. You know, that's it. You know, if you're ready and you're in the right place. I mean, Van Piedigen would never ask me to attack if I hadn't been going well. So, you know, it's all these... It's, it is a bit about making your own luck. But, um, yeah, my lasting memory was... Wow the um, the dices just kept on rolling rolling the right way for us that day. Cuz a lot of people thought that it was going to be Johan Mazeo's day wasn't it. It was his last
2: Paris-Roubaix. He was uh, retiring. Yeah, the Lion of Flanders was going to go out in style. And,
1: and Yeah, the irony of it to be taken out by a brick. I mean it's uh, <laughs> you know that's the, the the amazing irony of that race is you know just to see that I I can still see the Sony hit uh, you know as on his wheel following it and I just and I was just thinking, God, he hasn't seen that. And then, sure enough, bang, he hits it. And then, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it was, well, yeah, it was, yeah, it was a big irony to hit a stone in Rube in his final. But yeah, I mean, it, all the indications have been that, you know, they, it was a, it was the period of the Van Museo domination. And you know, the year, bef- the two years prior, it had been Museo everywhere. Then the year before, it had been Van Piedigam, Everywhere, and then all, you know. I think we were all. Exp- I mean, we were all waiting for it. It, actually. it was theirs to lose, really, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it was.
7: That, that, I think that's that's.
1: But when you watch the coverage of it, you know, obviously you don't see what's going on behind you, and but, you know, we've obviously watched the races back at, over times, and and just. I mean, I watch it in absolute awe of how fast Van Poggin chases. I know how fast we were riding, and with Museo attacking full gas, and then Van Poggin's just coming across like an absolute train. I mean, it was, for me, that's the most impressive Roubaix riding out of the last three or four generations. Just that Carrefour de Labre Van Piedigam on his own chasing. I mean, if I if I wanted to have something you know, in a, as a screensaver in my house, I'd have that run. Not me in there at all, just the Van Piedigam bit, because it was just an absolute pleasure to watch. At what point did
2: you
7: think hang on, we've got a chance here, we've got a real chance here. I think as we turn on to the Velodrome, and until that point for me it was they were too close behind us, too close for comfort all the time and I think at that point I was pretty sure that it was going to be the four of us sprinting it out for, for, for the win but at the same time we didn't have an awful lot of time to mess about on the track either, we, the, the pace needed to be kind of kept reasonably high to stay away from those guys and luckily I think Cancelara got on the front with a kilometre or so to go as we turn on to that little section where the K to go and then never got off the front and, and kept the pace at a reasonable rate. And and that kind of made for... We didn't have to panic too much and didn't have to worry too much about what was happening from behind. It was more a question of trying to work out how to set up the sprint and for me to and how to how to beat this guy. So Cancelara's on the front. You've gone into the
2: velodrome. Talk us through uh, what you were thinking at that point.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I, I just wanted... Yeah, it was, you know, I, I knew... He knew where people were before he went on to the velodrome. You know, you had done 260k racing against each other, so you knew, knew who the strong guys were. I knew Hoffman was the weakest. Um, he'd been missing a lot of turns on the final. Um, the unknown quantity was cancellara but we knew he couldn't sprint, so we knew he's, if he leads out, then it's going to be pretty easy to easy to come round him and, and, and the, so the only real person was, was Maggie that I, that I was thinking you know he's a, he's a big strong lad and he's you know you could tell he was going well on the day so um, you know I wanted to I wanted to make sure that he had to come round a long way round me to come before the sprint came. And, and that's what we had tried to engineer. So, um, yeah, it's, it, it was, you'd worked out who, who you really had to look out for before, long before you got to the final.
7: And from your point of view, Magnus, what was, what was going through your mind? I, I knew that if I left it too late, then, then I was going to struggle to beat Roger. And um, it, was, it was a question of I had to, do, to wait for as long as possible down the back straight before I went. But at the same time, I had to anticipate his move. And as I as I launched my sprint, Roger launched it uh, as well. So I ended up kind of getting boxed. I got got myself boxed in down the bottom of the track. And at that point, for some bizarre reason that I haven't really worked out yet why, but I think is the research and watching all the sprints on the track in in the past, I didn't panic and I thought, I only have one chance here and I only have one, there's only one way that I can actually win this and it's by staying cool, staying waiting down the bottom here now and hope that Roger goes on the outside of Cancellara because at that point, any normal person will start drifting a little bit higher up in the track to try and make him go long and luckily for me, that's exactly what happened and the gap opened up on the inside of the track and, and I, I took it. If I'd panicked at, at, at all and tried to back out and go around, then you know I, I definitely wouldn't have won that that, that race. So it all come, comes down to split-second decisions and sometimes unconscious sort of decisions that you, you just react to. Roger was definitely my biggest threat in in that there was no question about it, and and I, I focused all my ands why I put myself on his wheel coming into the final as well.
2: Split-second decisions and and sort of tactical judgment after 260 kilometers on you know some of the roughest ground in in, in northern Europe, flat out with some of the best riders. Um, it it takes a lot of effort, that doesn't
1: it? I think yeah, I think it becomes a little bit of second nature to be honest with you. Um, you know, like you, you know, Maggie's run it through, and, and in my process, uh, the you know, I'm just looking at somebody, and you just think, well hundred percent know that if i was leaning out this sprint and i go up i'm not going to win so then you know for my thought process was if you want to if you're trying to win rubay you'd stay down and you know so lifting up the door was was always going to open the door to somebody even if it was me on his wheel it would have opened the door for me to dive him. so you know and, and and you can only run through you, you learn by it. you know maggie started riding his bike when he was young i and and i think we find this a lot Especially now, in the job that I do now, is is you can see the guys that have been riding their bikes since a long, since they were seven, eight years old, and you can see the guys that are hugely talented, much more talented as an engine, but have started when they're 20. And, and and these all of these decisions that people make, they're just, it's, you know, it's it's like when you're driving your car. You know, you drive your car when you when you first pass your test. You're thinking about what you're doing. What's the rule at this junction? What's the rule at that junction? By the time you're 50, you've already thought about six cars ahead of you, what that car's going to do, because you've seen the lorry that he's going to overtake, so you know he's going to pull out before he does it, so you anticipate these things more. And, and and I think that's what happens in bike races, is that you end up riding these situations so many times, day in, day out, and, and against riders. You build up a profile of each of the riders and eventually... You know, you make those decisions, and they are subconscious decisions. And, and, you know, I always... For me, obviously, it's a sprint that I had to review and work out what went wrong, and and every time I review it, I still think, you know, actually, why would he ride for second? Or why would he ride for third? You know, you can't anticipate somebody riding, giving himself that opportunity and then... then, um, sort of throwing it away that, that close was, was really a hard concept for me to, to work out. You obviously also had the cyclocross experience, yeah, the top-level yeah. cyclocross experience for, for years. Did that help at Roubaix? No, I don't think so, really, because um, I think the biggest misconception about Roubaix is being good at riding cobbles. It is that when you're when it's wet, then you need to be able to ride the cobbles. But actually, realistically, what it was is why it becomes... I, I'm trying to convince... Well, Mark knows that you can win it himself, but i convinced that Mark can win it. Why? Because he can, as Maggie alluded to earlier, he'll always be in the first five guys on the cobbles. So in Paris-Roubaix, all I was doing was recovering. Every time I went to the cobbles, I recovered. And then you make two big efforts, one in one on Carrefour de Larbes and one on um, Forest of Arenberg. And that's the only two sections of cobbles where you're not actually just trying to conserve energy. So you know, it's it, yes, it would it would have helped, but unfortunately, through my career, I never got that opportunity to use my skills. You know, there was a lot of little things I thought I had an advantage with, with low centre of gravity, being quite small, as very aero. And, um, yeah, the cyclocross skills that I never really had to use because it was never wet.
7: <laughs> never mind. Funny though, I was doing the rain dances as well, but it never worked out either. But I, I did have the pleasure of riding it a couple of times in the wet and pretty special it's pretty special i love it i love it who do
2: you think uh, might be in the frame for 2018
1: yeah i don't know it's it's i think it's quite a difficult I, I think the classics peloton is different at the moment you know there isn't you know there isn't this guy that's this you know head and shoulders above everybody consistently better than everybody and and i think it's quite healthy in that in that respect i think the. you know that the 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 playing field is kind of leveled out a little bit more and and you know that that opens up the door for more people it's a little bit i have these a bit warped sense of theories on things but you know if, if you have one dominant person it tends to put all of the that that second layer of or second tier of people off because is is, you know what were the chances of Maggie and I winning that that race you know is one why are we still talking about that race now is because it was a once in a in a like a 40-year generation of of occurrences that happened that we were there so in the same way now that because there isn't this head and shoulders absolute dominant force anymore um, it's opened up that door for more people to be involved and then once there's more people involved you get a much more exciting race and and I think it's quite, you know, we, we obviously hope and pray every year with, with Ed Vold now, with, with Dimension Data. But, um, you know, it's it, it's nice for us to think that there is that possibility.
7: Yeah, I tend to agree with Roger. It's it's you know nice to see there are so many different riders that are capable of, of winning it these days. And uh, it seems like most of the teams at the top level as well are sort of having riders and and looking for those riders that that are good in in those type of races to to make sure everyone seems takes certainly paris Bay a lot more serious and all the guys are turning up on the start line now seem to be they want to be there and they all believe that they can do a a specific job uh, even if it's not winning but then they love to be there. Whereas I think back in the day, it was a bit more that you had a couple of guys from each team that kind of wanted to be there and wanted to do it, apart from the obvious teams like Mape or Quick-Step and some of the, the pure classics teams. But a lot of the teams were... Very much, you, you kind of struggle to feel the full lineup of riders who actually wanted
1: to be there past the first feed. Um, well, we got Igor, Igor, Anton in our team now, and Usketel used to park their bus at the second yeah. feed. Yeah. They didn't even used to yeah. take it to the No. no. And then uh, one, one of the riders wanted to go to the finish, and the sports director just stopped him, getting the bus because the flights are going. They book flights before the finish of the race, so yeah, it's changed life. And I think that's some, you know, to do with the ranking systems as well. You know, is if you win Roubaix, it's it's as many points as being in the first three in the Tour de France. And, and also, to
7: to a certain extent, I think um, all of a sudden the classics have become something that the general public is aware of. The media are much more onto those races as well in terms of covering. And obviously the the higher the profile the race gets, the more people want to be there and show themselves, and the more the teams want to make sure that they 're there and showing themselves off as well so uh, as with everything, I think the, the the more media you have at an event the the bigger the, the the sort of input gets gets from the teams and riders as well and this is something that i 'm sort of i 'm sitting here waiting and hoping that it 's going to happen within women 's cycling soon that the media will really go look let 's just take a punt at this and 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 broadcast the women's racing so so that we can get get a proper women's world tour going as well. Roger Hammond and Magnus Baxter, and that's nearly all from this edition,
2: although we couldn't go without finding out what our technical editor, Stuart Clapp of Rulers Desire section, has been up to. <laughs> So, Stuart, um, you've been on a photo shoot, I hear.
8: Yeah, well, we've... Yeah, we I, I decided we were going to do the whole the whole thing with women's kit. Women's kit is just so much better now. It's like gone are the days where it's like, shrink it, pink it. There's a lot more there than there was before, and I thought it was about time we highlighted it, and we've gotten some wicked kit, like, really cool stuff. Obviously, we've got some of the bigger brands that people have seen and can buy anywhere and we've got some more sort of boutique sort of stuff as well to go with it we've got in um some really nice kit from 1216 a lot of people didn't realize they did a women's line they do do a women's line it's really really nice um the kit from Eris slapendale her kit the girls like they loved that kit when they saw it it was like whoa, that's it's different you know like there's a lot going on on the kit but i love iris's style she's got such a good eye for that sort of stuff and i know she talked about it previously on the podcast and stuff
2: yeah she's always been a designer hasn't she as well as being a, a pro cyclist
8: yeah it's amazing like she she will make the samples herself and then you know it's like there is a real boutique feel. And like she's she's the one posting out the kit it's not like there isn't a warehouse behind it and you get that feeling as well like she's you know you follow her on instagram and stuff like that and she's you know she's doing videos of herself taking you know packaging up the kit and it's just nice it's nice because i mean that personal touch is is really cool
2: and speaking of the personal touch there's some new ruler kit as well
8: yeah yeah i um i saw it yesterday i was in the office yesterday and um i got to have a look and uh i didn't get to blag any yet
2: mine seems to have gone missing in the post i haven't received my kit
8: yet yeah on the first day it's always it's already been super popular i've just realized that there aren't any base layers i don't know whether we must be due a restock uh but that base layer is quite something i think it just looks really cool they were saying in the office how like it's just a shame it's underneath the jersey it's like well not necessarily what i would do is unzip it obviously have some sort of chain hanging around with a with a pendant
2: yeah, Baby's Dummy, that's always popular at the finish line, isn't it? Yeah,
8: ba- ba- Baby's Dummy, that 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 would be a classic.
2: Now, we've been talking about Paris-Roubaix uh, throughout the podcast. Um, I believe you actually once worked there.
8: I went with Garmin. It was David Miller's last Paris-Roubaix, the one where he thought he'd finished and then the commissaire came over and said, David, you've got to go around another time. That was awkward. The poor sod had only just finished, you know. Like, Come on, just let him off, this is his last one. But I was there and I was in the car with Dominic Roland?
2: Supposedly your job was there to hold the spare wheels.
8: Yeah, can you imagine the stress on that? God, don't don't get that wrong. Yeah, you know the ones who stand at the end of the cobbled sectors with the uh, wheels in the air? Well, I did that with him. It was intense. It was really intense. And there's so much stress that goes on behind the scenes. They have like like four of these cars that are going to each sector. And at the end of each sector, there's a guy that gets out, girl gets out with a with a wheel if someone punctures. Luckily, we didn't have any. But during it, like you see the cobbled sectors across Paris, like, you know, the Paris-Roubaix, the, the route. But there's little roads off that that are equally as hideous that the cars we were going down to try and get shortcuts to the next the next point. And we, we got all four wheels off the ground. We went over a humpback bridge. We hit the car. The car got bumped into a few times. It was like it's a really stressful day. But the ultimate thing, the thing that stands out above everything else, coming towards the end of the race, uh, it's just starting to kick off, right? So Trek were on the front, and then like Boonen was behind him. And Bonen's I watched him come out of this, this sector, and he got a whole power bar out. And I love Boonham, but this made me love him even more. A whole power bar, down in one, Et it. It was incredible. It was one of the most spectacular...
2: Probably best thing. if we leave Stuart alone yeah. with his thoughts no, about Tom time Boonham time for the time moment time and, time and time rejoin time him later.
8: And those triceps of his...
2: And that's it from this edition. Thanks to Will Fotheringham, thanks to Andy McGrath, and thanks to all our guests. Uh, we'll catch up soon.
8: I said to Dominic Roland, I said, did you just see him take that whole power bar down? And Dominic Roland didn't bat an eyelid and just looked at me and went... Stuart, sometimes you need to.